watchers in the fourth dimension. It appears he comes from a dying man. Dawn tomorrow, the city will weep tears of blood. Hello, God. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And you'd be surprised what I've got in my wardrobe. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> well, following up off of the back of that Dalek epic that took us two episodes to cover, we're off to the much more comfortable setting of 16th century France for a fun rump called The Massacre? Yeah, it's all about religious persecution. It might also possibly be called The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. They just can't decide the title on this one. Jumping straight into behind the scenes, this one was written by our old friend John Lucarotti, who had previously written both Marco Polo and the Aztecs, so that's quite the CV so far. However, the journey of this story from pen to screen was not an easy one. Previous story editor, our friend Dennis Spooner, had commissioned Lucarotti to write a story about Vikings landing in Newfoundland in 1000. AD. However, his successor, Donald Tosh, rejected that storyline, and Lucarotti, believing he'd been guaranteed a commission by Spooner, called his agents, complained, some nastiness happened, and Tosh eventually said, alright, we'll pay you for something. But you've got to do it about the Huguenot Massacre. Lucarotti just kind of thought, shit. <laughs> so he wrote the drafts, Tosh didn't like them, stepped in, very heavily rewrote them, and that was to the point where Lucarotti actually asked that his name was removed from the credits before changing his mind before it was broadcast. When we were doing Dalek's Master Plan, we mentioned that both Donald Tosh and producer John Wiles were on their way out. And Tosh was actually the first one of them to leave, with a new script editor, Jerry Davis, stepping in as story editor, allowing Tosh to be given a writing credit on episode four. This would be his only ever writing credit on the show, although he returns to write a lost story for Big Finish entitled The Rose Mariners. Speaking of Jerry Davis, our new story editor, prior to coming to the show, he had written for long-running soap Coronation Street and a show I'd never heard of called 199 Park Lane, and he served as the story editor on the latter of those. He will stay with us on Doctor Who through the majority of season four and will help ease the transition in lead actors when that comes about. A little bit of excitement around the director's chair. This was the debut of Paddy Russell, and she is the first woman to direct the show. She'll return three more times in the 1970s, and outside of Doctor Who, she had directed for shows such as Out of the Unknown, Zed Cars, The Omega Factor, and another long-running soap called Emmerdale. Julie, my apologies, but this is another story that does not have a credited composer. <sighs> yeah, sorry. In the designer seat, we have Michael Young, and this is his only ever contribution to the Doctor Who universe, and he works on a fair number of fairly diverse shows, including Adam Adamant Lives, up Pompeii, which is a wonderful comedy set in ancient Roman times, and To Serve Them All My Days, which is kind of a period BBC drama. What was that first one? Did you say Adam Ant Lives? Adam Adamant. Ah, okay. I thought it was some really interesting 80s show. Sadly not. It's, it's actually a very good uh, 60s show that was created by Verity Lambert, so it's worth checking out, actually. Some people say that the lead character was the inspiration for the third Doctor. Hmm. Anyway, that covers almost all of the behind-the-scenes information. However, one final item is that the production team did consider bringing one of the characters, Anne Chaplet, on as a permanent companion before deciding that she would cause the exact same problems that Katerina caused. So they said, eh, never mind, and we get the rather rushed ending with the introduction of Dodo, whom we'll talk about properly next episode. With that, 
we move on to our short summary, which this time is in the hands of Julie. Over to you. In this story, we discover that Catherine de' Medici is trying to assert her family's power in France, not just Italy, and is scared about the marriage of Henry of Navarre. He is a Huguenot, oh no, which is the worst thing that could possibly ever happen. <laughs> a lot of political maneuvering happens and a massacre starts. Oh, wait, I, th- I think I forgot something. Oh, our TARDIS crew interact with people who don't matter, don't affect the plot at all, don't save anybody, <laughs> and we end with a dodo on board. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Julie, cutting. I like it. <laughs> All right, let's talk about this story. Episode one, War of God. It shouldn't be War of God, it's War Over God, and it's because people just can't seem to decide that they like each other, even though they think different things. Yeah, it's almost like that's, you know, not a problem we have these days. Or, you know, for all of the whole world. It's <laughs> So I can immediately see why John Lucarotti didn't want to write this. Yeah, I mean, what can you do? What can you do with this? What can you do with this story in history? There's a lot of politics here that, frankly, through the entire story, I just found myself not caring about. Yeah, it definitely gave a feel of, uh, you know, I feel like this inspired a young George Lucas for the prequels kind of feel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there is a lot of trade routes. And frankly, there is just too many characters. I mean, most I, I almost wrote down this thing of just trying to map who was who and, and what they wanted and what side they were on. Right. And it's really yeah. just, it's and a fairly simple story about, Hey, we're going to assassinate this person to cause problems and ensure our power. Yeah. But it's told in such a way that I found it really frustrating. Well, one, they didn't do a good job of setting up the backstory because yeah, it is very simple. I was mentioning to the guys earlier, uh, I listened to a series of podcasts about the Medici family, um, including this whole massacre. Um, and that was more entertaining just from a straight up, hey, this is what happened in history versus this. So, yeah, they shouldn't have added just minor, you know, like servant, not, you know, like, yeah, servants or in all these other individuals who it doesn't matter what they're doing it's like oh i'm serving my lord well why don't you just have the lord there i don't need to see you so it was just a lot of we're not gonna you know it would have been not, what they could have done is the doctor could have given like a little two minute spiel about what was going on in that era and that would have fixed a lot of it but that would have required the doctor to actually do something in this story and to be on and to be and to, and to be on set actually yeah here's the thing you have you have the actor who is now double billed and he's actually on screen about a quarter of the time that he would usually be that makes no sense to me but the doctor does have a wonderful new hat which you know is what really matters here oh yes. never mind 10 out of 10 let's move on yeah. <laughs> um the the one thing i really will give this episode is just from the uh recon i get the feeling it had a lot of great atmosphere it sounded very tense particularly this first episode there's a real sense of fear in the characters that something bad is going to happen i liked that about it i agree with that I also, being the crazy person that I am, with the reconstruction, it had that opening artwork that was that famous painting of the massacre itself. 
which I, you know, was looking into some of the details and I was like, oh, well, there's Catherine de' Medici on this, uh, on this painting. So I, I did like some of the details that they took with that. They did actually use that print in the original episode to open it oh. as well. So they tracked okay. down the appropriate print and, and used it to give you something actually pretty accurate. Even That's better. Really cool. Yeah. The other interesting thing I thought about this particular episode was seeing Stephen without the Doctor. He's so <laughs> lost. I guess. Maybe that's good for one episode of the serial, but that's basically the entire serial. It is. And it's kind of raises the question of, are we watching Doctor Who or are we watching a spinoff of Doctor Who of this companion? And no one else. Don't get me wrong. There, are, there have been episodes of Doctor Who without the Doctor in them or barely in them that are very, very good. But um, this was not one of those. Well what was weird about it was that it was basically Steven just being like, sure, I'll hang out with you guys. As opposed to Steven really trying to like take initiative and, you know, actually go find the doctor or do anything. He was just like, oh, hey, thanks. I'm going to buds with you guys because you invited me and you're nice. Like, uh. yeah, that's it. Exactly. I mean, I, I like the idea of Steven getting his time to shine. Because normally he's just there to be the muscle and sort of bounce off the other companion. But he doesn't really have any agency in this story. The only thing he wants is to find the doctor and leave. But at least he didn't really get taken prisoner and we didn't have to go through that trope. So that's something. You know, it's, it's funny because the point you're bringing up there is that maybe they were attempting to try to do a uh, the mistaken man kind of uh, plot device of like, you know, North by Northwest. And when he's mistaken for somebody else and he gets involved and no one believes him that he's just some person passing through, I guess maybe they did try some sort of element of that, of him being confused to be a Catholic spy or on the other side, blah, 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 blah. It may it could have been better executed if he was, you know, set up as looking like or having something that made him other people for certain believe that he was this person involved with the uh, conspiracy. That would, that would have been more interesting. Instead of this kind of light, tenuous thread between like, oh, he was over there talking to them. Oh, he must be a Catholic spy. And it just seems like everyone's so quick to immediately categorize someone off of like the flimsiest consequence. I mean, excuse me, circumstance. Well, I mean, you saw the, the angry crowd in episode three, I think it was. So, yeah, they're all pretty quick to jump to conclusions. <laughs> We do end this episode with what I think must have been a really great cliffhanger, and what I think is one of the main plot points of this episode is the abbot showing up, and it's William Hartnell. So much of what comes next hinges around, well, is it the Doctor, or is he just someone who looks like the Doctor? <laughs> Dr. Doppelganger. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's decent. It would have made more sense if their personalities were a little bit more similar because yes, at the very, you know, the cliffhanger, you know, I was even thinking, Oh, that could be the doctor. But then when you actually interact with him, I'm like, there's no way. So I think that takes us into episode two, the sea bagger. <laughs> <laughs> Good transition, Julie. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to start this with reading a couple of my notes. I, I think I've got a, a good selection here of, all the politics in this, not entertaining. <laughs> Are the English planning on helping the Huguenots? Who cares? <laughs> Tell him the sea beggar dies tomorrow. Who is he and why do we care? Yeah. 
And you just sit there and it's like, you know, will England help? Well, Elizabeth is the Queen of England and her country already went through a whole bunch of everyone is going to die because they're Catholic. Everyone's going to die because they're Protestant. I don't think she really wants to get involved in yet another religious dispute. <laughs> I think yeah. she's done with that. <laughs> oh, and who cares? Uh, final one. <laughs> Alliance with the Dutch against the Spanish? Again, why do we care? <laughs> well, then on top of that, I mean, uh, that's the macro, like what's going on in the, you know, uh, at the setting, but also like at a more micro level in the plot, it's literally just Stephen like trying to get directions to Port St. Martin and like basically, and just, I'm lost. I'm trying to find my dad. Where's my dad? I mean, he's just basically a kid at a shopping in, in, a, in a grocery store. I mean, that's literally all there is so this is so, just another version of home alone basically is that what you're saying <laughs> i think the crux of my problem here is i mean i realize i'm coming across as having a very um english view of history it's not that i don't care about this it's the fact that the story does nothing to tell me why i should care i yeah. i will completely agree i mean i found myself caring about nitpicky things like the the subplot of Preslin's shop where the doctor goes there immediately finds him and they wind up getting along great and then they both just disappear by the time that Stephen finally gets there some lady tells him oh this place has been boarded up and abandoned for two years really yeah so you're just left thinking well who the hell did the doctor meet right it makes no sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also the interesting, like for me, since I knew a little bit about like some of the history behind it, what they needed to do is they needed to pick one of the historical figures and stick with them because it's like, I actually think if you had actually taken Henry of Navarre and, and focused on him, because this is an interesting story because he ends up becoming the King of France. And so then you could have played off of that in some degree. Um, he just got married, so there's some you know stuff around that. So at least that would give you like a person to cling to. But they were just like, well, we have you know Gaston and Nicholas, and you know they're kind of you know they're Henry's like guards, I guess. I don't I don't know how they're related to him at all. But yeah, they're interesting. No, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> they just they're like. Well, I agree with Henry. Well, I don't agree with Henry. Well, who mm. Then get Henry on screen. And it all falls back to the central issue, like what Anthony was saying, is why do we care? There's no... <laughs> there needs to be some sort of stake set out. I mean, even in, 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 in the 1960s when this episode came out, what year was this, Anthony? 1963, 64 now? 66. We, 66. God, we're going fast. But, you know, that time, people, viewers of that time would need to know, like, okay, why does this historical event matter and if it doesn't m matter in a large global sense or a sense that maybe we're not aware of how does it matter on a character sense but we have too many characters and no characters for us to care about and the two characters that we do care about one of them just one of them just want to do a tourist trip and the other one wants to get just leave that's it there's no ticking clock neither one of them know that they're in any danger the yeah, doctor doesn't right. realize that it's about to be the massacre until what the last episode. Yes, mm -hmm. and and Stephen has no idea. He's just bumming around with his friends trying to find the doctor. So there's there's no real drama there. Why I pick on Henry of Navarre is because when he ends up becoming the king of France, he starts the Bourbon line, I believe. 
So in the grand scheme of things, it is very important that this massacre occurred because he could have very well died in it. He actually had to get, you know, and again, this is because I have a whole bunch of knowledge about this. And so if they, again, if they played off of that and they were like, oh man, if this, if he hadn't have survived this, we wouldn't have had, you know, a whole bunch of reigning monarchs of France and France would have been drastically different, but they didn't do that. No, they did not. I want to rewrite this whole serial. <laughs> I mean, I really think that the fundamental problem here is we have a script that was written by one guy who didn't want to write the script that was then completely rewritten by someone else. It's, it's just a bit of a mess across the board. But then when and they novelized it... it, he went back to his original script. Ooh. Yeah. Now, the weird huh. thing is, except for one review I found online, we're in the minority on this. Yes. What? What? Yes. <laughs> yes, this has the reputation of a true lost classic. Oh, wow. Uh. So what I'm finding <laughs> fascinating here is all four of us watch this completely independently. We've barely exchanged any notes on this up until we got on this session today, and none of us particularly liked this. I was honestly expecting this to be another instance where everyone else talks about how great and Shakespearean it is and me just sort of sitting here going, um, I, I didn't enjoy it. And that's, no. I think there's some quality in here. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen. There's some decent writing. There's some good lines, but I don't care about any of the characters or about what yeah. happens. And I just found myself mainly trying to figure out who is this person? How does this relate? Why do I care? I think the one character we're meant to very much care about is Anne. Yes. Who yeah. we get introduced yeah. to towards the end of episode two. And then gets tossed away in episode four. Yeah, so it's almost like with her and Steven, it seems like it's love at first sight between them. Or was that just me picking up on that? That's I didn't just, get that at no. all. No. Uh, okay, I was shipping them. <laughs> Pretty hard. <laughs> I mean, you do you, man. That's that's fine. I think I think Stephen uh, and actually, uh, I was say, about to say this jokingly, but now I'm um, I seeing this, and I I think it's quite true. I think Stephen is just feeling very sensitive about you know running into another young woman and seeing her possibly you know get killed, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. think he's just got the memories of before, and so he's just. You know, very sensitive about that. That's that's my read of it. That's true. See, nothing can ship like Ian and Barbara. So I just I can't. I that's can't true. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, that pretty much takes us into episode three, Priest of Death. We are back to our heavy metal song title episode <laughs> titles. We really are. Sea Beggar is kind of lame, but Priest of Death and even Bell of Doom is all right. So War of God. War of God. War of God's good too. The whole th that's one of the strongest parts of the serial is just the titles. I mean, these all sound like Black Sabbath tracks. <laughs> yeah. Not gonna lie. Also, episode three does bring in another fantastic hat, which Steven <laughs> uses as a disguise. Yes. This is the year of the hats. <laughs> we had the yeah. Doctor's fantastic hat in the latter half of the Daleks Master Plan. We've got the Doctor with another hat here, Stephen wearing a hat as a disguise. I'm loving the hat action. They know me. Hats are amazing. <laughs> On the downside, we get more politics. More politics. Um, I do like the costumes from the pictures and the sills. I'm like, all right, 
costumes are a win. Sorry, I'm just going by what I like. I'm not the plot. There was the, the weird <laughs> how they basically Photoshop people's heads onto certain bodies. The and the, in the reconstruction, yeah, that's in, that was enjoyable. Yeah, because we don't have any telesnaps. Because, I mean, while I'm not a proctologist, so I can't speak as to exactly where John Wiles' head was when he decided not to do that, I do have my suspicions. And now we suffer for it because we don't get a better reconstruction. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, again, uh, it was mentioned earlier, someone said that there are quite a few lines that are pretty good in this. And I liked one of them that it's like, kings are only recognized by the, by the power they yield. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a that's pretty a good, good solid line. All right. Yeah. With the performance of Hartnell as the abbot, I mean, I mentioned earlier, it seems like a lot of the plot really hinges on Stephen not knowing whether or not he's the doctor or the abbot or you know the doctor pretending to be the abbot as the audience he's he plays it so differently i think i don't see how as the viewer anyone could be confused on that i agree so you've either got depending on how you interpret it you could possibly have the doctor not letting steven in on his plan in any way or what actually happened the doctor just disappearing for days yeah, I would love to know what he got up to in this time. Yeah, he makes like no real mention of it. It's just like, I'm back. Hi. Like, you know, and it's interesting because this is also he did. A, it was not as, you know, like clear and blatant as it is here. But um, remember in Dalek's master plan, when they're about to go back in, he like disappears and then just shows up right, right, at, right at the end, if you remember correctly. Yep. Yeah, and it's just like so, once again he has this time like, well, I was just away. This is uh, the part where the Doctor and Daleks master plan like they're about to go back into uh, the base where the Daleks are, and yeah, it, is this something I don't remember this happening with the Doctor and my first Doctor reviewing of him just disappearing and literally giving no explanation of where he went or what he was doing. That's because you've never done the missing episodes before. Ah. <laughs> No, I, I, I mean, as far as I recall, and it's been a while since I've um, done these, I think this is where that stops, which, you know, coincidentally is pretty much the end of Tosh and Wiles' tenure on the show. So I, I am left wondering whether a lot of this was partly down to the tension between them. One of you mentioned earlier how Hartnell was only basically in a quarter of this story, even though he was technically in all episodes as two different roles mm-hmm. well this was when wiles was still trying to figure out whether he could sack him and <laughs> have him oh, leave the show worst. so they were deliberately trying to reduce his time yeah wiles is the worst <sighs> well not much longer yeah oh no so he will really... always be the worst <laughs> oh i mean we don't have to deal with <laughs> yes. him for much longer so what's really unfortunate about this episode is that it has an amazing title, but there's literally not much to talk about. It's a lot of politics. It's Stephen trying to, you know, figure out what the Abbott thing and all that. Uh, uh, Catherine de' Medici actually talks about some things and, you know, wields her power um, as she should. Yeah, I was concerned about that because in the previous scene with her, she said absolutely nothing. I'm like, are we going to go through this entire thing where she doesn't even have one line? So that was a uh, that was pleasant to see them like you know have her say something. Yep, and then you know in the end, the 
the abbot dies. Like there's not much plot wise that happens in this in this episode, even though it has a great title. Yeah. We do get that wonderful baying mob at the end. Yeah. I, yeah. I would really love to see how that looked. I think, you know, we keep talking about how there are some flashes of things that were very, very good here, but it's just flashes. And I think that's one of those moments. And, you know, knowing which stories Paddy Russell will come back to direct in the 70s, I, I suspect that was done very, very well. Okay. Bell of Doom. So we finally mentioned that it's close to St. Bartholomew's Day. Yes, when the Doctor shows up and realises what's going on. Oh my god. This is the kind of stuff he should really ask in episode one. Yeah. yeah. At which point he would go, oh crap, we must leave. Yeah, because cause from what I can recall, they knew that Hen- Henry of Navarre had just gotten married. It, it's pretty well known that it was very shortly after that that that's when the massacres happened. So it's like... Should be able to pick up on that a little bit sooner. It is great when he shows up again. Well, I mean, it... I've missed him. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But uh, yes. I, did anyone else like feel the same amount of like rage and anger that Stephen felt in that scene? Like, you know, basically him saying, "Where the hell have you been?" And then the doctor to just dismissively just like brush him off, like. Oh, I was unavoidably delayed. Never mind that now. Yeah. I'm like, no, yeah. very much mind that now. You're yeah. the guy yeah. telling me, like, don't do anything. Don't go out there. Don't do this. Don't do that. And he's like, I followed, I tried to follow all your rules and you just were gone. Oi, oi. Yeah, I said, oh, you yeah. should have stayed at the, at the tavern. He's like, I couldn't. I had to leave. They closed. <laughs> you know? He's like, I stayed as long as I could. <laughs> the doctor's a bad uh. friend. I'm just gonna yeah. say this. Particularly <laughs> in this much. story. Yes. Yeah. So he he never says what he was doing. Stephen still doesn't know whether or not he was the abbot. <laughs> I mean <laughs> You know, this this episode would have been a lot better if they just tried to go for farce and like with all the characters asking questions like and no one knows who the abbot is or who the sea beggar is the entire time everyone's just asking the other person and they act like they know but they really really don't know i feel like that would have been really enjoyable that actually reminds me of something because they almost did something interesting because they were sort of laying these hints that the abbot wasn't what he seemed there was a character going oh have you met him before oh i just met him for the first time the other day and it it really was seemed to be sort of pushing the audience to thinking there was really something up with him that he might actually be the doctor but the whole plot thread just made no sense it just kind of fell apart and again i i think so much of this is at the feet of Donald Tosh and his rewrites. From what I've read, the script that John Lucarotti originally delivered had Hartnell very heavily actually doing the dual roles at the same time. And Tosh's rewrites had effectively wrote the Doctor out so that Hartnell would either be playing the Doctor or the Abbot, but not both at the same time. Oh, that would have been so great at the same time. Mm-hmm. Oh, that would have been fun. Yeah, All those type of things. but instead he barely plays either of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The one thing that I was able to, to grasp in all of this is, so, you know, Catherine de' Medici actually is like, all right, start this whole crazy nonsense. And then Simon, who is one of the few characters that I caught the name of, 
who has wanted to have Navarre dead, and I think the other guy dead as well, he's wanted to kill everybody, is given the task with having actually to save Henry, and it's like, haha, sucks to be you. <laughs> he's a bloodthirsty <laughs> bastard, isn't he? <laughs> really is. <laughs> so, that little part just made me really happy, because I was like, ha you were the reason why he then became king, like, you know, a couple of years later. Fine. We, we keep talking about the flashes of brilliance here, and there's one line from the final episode before we leave uh, Paris that I loved, which was, this city will weep tears of blood. Oh, that's good. I was like, yeah, that's very metal. Very much so. <sighs> I think that's as much as we can stand a historical bit. But then we get, let's to, get to the best part yeah, of the entire episode. Let's get yes, to please. the part I yeah. actually enjoyed considerably. Which is, yes. A, Stephen just telling the doctor off and well deservedly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, this is like all of a sudden is like what, watching this episode, all, I mean, watching all this, the entire serial, each episode, like you start off, you're like giving it a shot, and then you feel yourself just, just kind of like falling down and just kind of just, you know, just falling back. And then when this happens, all of a sudden you just immediately feel energized and perked up, like, oh, Okay, here we go. Here's the episode. It's like finally started now. Very much so. Very, very mm-hmm. much so. I mean, it's just amazing how much this part right here like grabbed my attention so much. And I was like, okay, I'm in. There's, there's that. There is, you know, then the reactions of, you know, Stephen threatening to leave, actually leaving the TARDIS. And then, you know, the doctor trying to justify a few things, you know, saying like, don't try to judge history from where you stand. And the... You know, I dare not change this, but then he's second-guessing himself because he's like, they're all gone. Yeah, he really sounds like he's trying to convince himself when he said, I was right to do what I did. And it's like, you, you don't really sound like you believe it, though. Well, he hasn't doubting himself so much, he even thinks briefly about going home before realizing he can't even do that. I think this is made even more poignant by the fact that this is effectively the fourth story in the row, if you think of Mission to the Unknown of uh, as... The Doctor failing simply by the fact that he didn't show up, where the Doctor has failed. Yeah, this is a real feel-good season. Yeah. <laughs> Mission to the Unknown, he doesn't show up. Myth Makers, half the characters die. Dalek's Master Plan, almost everyone dies. And here, almost everyone dies. Uh, he's just It's failure after failure after failure. And in that monologue, he knows it. And he is close to giving up. It's brilliant. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely that is the best. This is the best part. There's that. And not only all the deaths, but also just like the number of companions has just gotten lower and lower until at some such point that he's alone. And, you know, like we've only seen this where he's always been with someone. He's either always been with Susan or he's had multiple other companions. And now all of a sudden he's like, oh, it's been years. I haven't been alone in years. And also let's. Let's be very clear, out of all the companions, I mean, it's out of all the ones that have come before, I would argue that he's had the least amount of, of a positive relationship with Stephen. Compared, I mean, everyone else he's, had so, he's been so much closer with, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Stephen hasn't so really been like developed he, as an individual character too much. Yeah. He, he feels more like uh, a, a fair in, in, in the doctor's taxi than like an actual like true friend or companion he's just a guy that's happens to be stuck along for the ride well i mean ian was that for quite a while but there was it, a p- 
playful like one's upmanship between the two of them and kind of each of them needling each other but like you know steven and the doctor don't really have that they just have this it only just there's nothing and then all of a sudden there's just this big fight right now that happens and then and then he's back so i mean by this stage they have to be fair been through a lot everything yeah. that went down in dalek's master plan mm-hmm. you know i i feel like ian barbara susan even Vicky, with the exception of the Mythmakers, didn't see people just dying repeatedly. And that's what Stephen and the Doctor have been through together. And Stephen is at a point where he is fed up with the Doctor not being able to do anything. And himself not being able to do anything. Fair. Mm-hmm. So then, someone just randomly barges into the TARDIS. I have to say that's my one of my favorite devices for introducing a companion is the sudden, just like abrupt, just entry into really? the, onto the yep. onto the scene. No, I, I really do. I like that. I like it. I like that just sudden surprise. I found it kind of forced. Uh, I was like, really? You just show up? I think. I, and your name I is know, Dodo. Maybe, I I think it's more like just because after all of what we've just talked about, all these dark episodes, it's fun to have something playful and a light, airy presence just suddenly just popping up out of nowhere. It just seems a lot more optimistic than what we've been dealing with. So I found found it refreshing. It feels so abrupt and out of place. And Dodo has just wandered into the TARDIS, takes everything in her stride. I I realize I'm talking about a show in which... uh, man from another world (laughs) travels from planet to planet in a magical box that is bigger on the inside than the outside but her reactions to entering the TARDIS just don't seem realistic I agree it seemed really forced and and tacked on and yes her name her name bothers me (laughs) one of the uh, later novels original novels attempts to explain why she is so nonchalant about the whole thing and then in this was a book called salvation by steve lyons and what it basically says uh, i'm not saying this is a good explanation but this is how he steve lyons tries to explain this away he basically implies that dodo had just got away from an attempted rape Oh, wow. And she was in uh, shock. Uh, wow, what a crutch. What yeah. a crutch. Jeez. One that doesn't make sense with what she was saying, because she said that someone had gotten hurt. A boy. Yeah. She was running into the police box. Um, so I don't like that. Oh, for it's me, nonsense. Yeah. For, for me, the big thing is that since I don't know her yet, it could be that that's just how she is. That she is just goes with the flow type of person. So I could believe that there is a certain subset of people who would just barge in and be like, well, this is weird. All right, cool. I just don't know if she's that person. You're right. Or if not that, I mean, you don't have to be just like a roll with the punches type of person. She could be a person that like, you know, walks in there is immediately just like stunned and petrified about like, wow, this is really weird. But she doesn't want to show it. She wants to keep it all within because she doesn't yeah. want people to see, you know, she wants to you know, keep her poker face on. And therefore, she's acting like, oh, whatever. No big deal. And yes. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm waiting to know more about her and see more about her before saying that this was a bad intro. 
here's the thing, right? So you think about the English and the, the stereotype of stiff upper lip and, you know, well, this is all terribly nice, isn't it, old chap? Well, that's not what this is, because she's just running her mouth. Like, she's clearly... It reminds me of Donna. Like, when Donna shows yeah. up in the TARDIS, she's like, what? What? How That's dare true. you? And so I'm just, it, it just reminded me a little bit like that, because obviously Donna was a little bit more over the top about it um, and a little bit more angry. I mean, she was supposed to be at her wedding, so I get that. Her in her wedding dress. Uh, but so I think I kind of took it a little bit like that. That's fair. So, and I love Donna, so. Yeah, we'll see if you love Dodo after the next few stories. <laughs> I Can might I... not. And again, the name. The name yeah, is the name, I would like to bring up. I, I was studying this scene in particular because it was the one, like I said, that like really just perked my ears up and made me really want to pay attention. And did anyone else feel like that the doctor didn't accidentally forget that she was on the TARDIS when he took off? Oh no, he's a kidnapper. I pretty much straight up, he's straight up kidnapper. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. okay. okay. It, yeah. It's not out of his realm of possibility. He kidnaps people. It's what he does. <laughs> and and this was because he felt like she looked like Susan. Yes. Which, aside from maybe the hair, I'm not and, sure I see. And but... and that is that is not a serial killer thing to do at all. Okay, <laughs> just get that out of your mind. Uh. <laughs> yeah, well, this wasn't shoehorned in at all. And okay, we need to we need to you know wrap it up with the whole like you know what's her last name, what was Anne's last name? Oh, Chaplet. Oh, yeah, well, that makes I, everything okay. Maybe she yeah. survived and had descendants, even though you know. Yeah, I that, that, that that's part not how names <laughs> generally work. Yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm sure that the mother's name would have survived in the very patriarchal society of 16th century France. Ay. <laughs> and Stephen comes back for no adequately explored reason because the police are on their way come on doctor we have to go what I mean you would think after all the things they've had to like attack them and fight them they're worried about two British police officers in 1966 yeah no if I had been Stephen I would have been like oh hey back in England in, in the 60s I'm going to go find Ian and Barbara yeah. Yeah. Just throwing that out there. Oh, speaking of uh, speaking of Ian and Barbara, there is uh, in the Doctor Who uh, Companions book, uh, Doctor Who Companions by David J. J. Howell, William Russell and Jacqueline Hill were supposed to reprise their roles as Ian and Barbara as a cameo appearance. Yes, they were. And that didn't happen. <laughs> but I thought that would have been nice. But. That would have been really cute. Yes, it would have been wonderful. So, yes, metrics. Um, any nominations for the camp count? No. Simon. No. Simon. I, may, I don't know. This no. whole thing seemed very uncamp and unfun. I, I don't know. I Simon think... had like a classic, like kind of villainous voice with like, you know, I don't know. I just thought the way he like, you know, spoke was just kind of like over the top. But I'm actually going to nominate the king. His little hissy fit as well. It was quite a magnificent tantrum. I'm gonna agree with Don, though. It just wasn't enough. Yeah. Uh, okay, we'll go with zero on the camp count. Um, and the newly introduced I'll explain later count. Nothing, because the doctor couldn't be bothered to explain it all. 
and didn't even give the courtesy of, I'll explain later. No Fs given. (laughs) (laughs) Oy vey. All right. So let's score the episode. Julie, you get to start first this time. I had the luck of listening to a podcast beforehand, so I actually at least understood the politics that was happening. So step up one for me, but the but the story did a very poor job of it. I did like uh, some of the lines that were done. Um, from what I could tell from the stills and everything uh, and what other, other pictures they had, I felt that the you know, costuming is what was done well and things of that nature. Especially if I'm looking at stuff from this season, it's no Galaxy... Was Galaxy 4 this season? I don't even know yeah, anymore. Yeah, Galaxy 4 was the season opener. Yeah, um, so it's not like that. So I am going to give it five Medici's out of ten. Hey, Riley. Uh, let's start positive. I'm sure that if, from what I could see, uh, the costumes looked great. I like the fact that they tar- tackled a very dark moment in history. And they gave it like a proper respect, unlike, you know, the burning of Rome where the doctor was getting all excited like a pyromaniac. So it's good that it had some sort of like somber tone to it uh, in that regard. And I enjoyed that. But everything else, like the journey to get there was just convoluted, confused, no stakes. Like we've mentioned before, too many characters. It's just a mess. But uh, instead of just slagging it more, I'm just going to go ahead and me and Anthony earlier discussed about how this serial was basically a Stephen story instead of a Doctor story. It was like a spinoff. So here are my two options for the different titles for the serial. It's Stephen and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Massacre or a Stephen Stephen Taylor in St. Bartholomew's Court. Those are the two that I came up with. So anyway, end of the day, not that great if you're going along and following through these serials seriously like just watch the first episode of this one and then like the last half of the last one just to know and understand what's happening with the companion switch or the companion edition i mean so i'll give it uh three sea beggars out of ten all right um so i'm up next and i mean we've we've all talked about how it's difficult to care about the politics of this even if you're familiar with it this the the writing doesn't pull you in here in my opinion there are some great things going for this. Some of the dialogue is snappy, and then there's there's that ending. And I would love to see Hartnell's dual performance. I, I really would. But that's not really enough to rescue it for me. On top of this, the really interesting thing about doing this the way we have been doing it is watching everything in order. And to the point I made earlier, everyone dies in Mission to the Unknown. Half of the cast die in The Myth Makers. Almost everyone dies in Dalek's Master Plan, and the majority of the characters die in this. This used to be a fun adventure show. I look back at season two, and it was so enjoyable. And this has just become so relentlessly grim, and I'm left in a position of, I just want the show I loved back. I really do. And... I'm struggling at this point, and those who know me know that this is a show that has been my passion since I was about five years old. And watching this in order, this this is really not enjoyable at this point. If it weren't for the, the last ten minutes of the final episode, I think I would give this a four out of ten. 
but that last 10 minutes just about drags it up to four and a half bells of doom out of 10. <laughs> Don. That was very eloquent, and I, I really, I'm not sure if I can follow it up, but I'm going to try. <laughs> this serial, to me, felt like a lot of lost opportunities. There was a really great chance to have the Doctor in a dual role where it wasn't a robot or a clone, and it was squandered. We had a good chance to really get to know Steven, and I felt they kind of squandered that too, because he wasn't really doing anything except trying to leave. I felt they had a good opportunity to introduce a new companion, and I think Anne would have been a good choice, because, I mean, really... Considering how outlandish the premise of the show is, you can have someone from the past sort of catching up if they're smart enough. It's, it'll, it would be fine. Instead, we get someone crashing in for no reason at the last minute. You know, I'm really glad Riley enjoyed that. I wish I felt that way about it. But to me, it just seemed really like a bad solution to a problem they had created for themselves. That said, there was some good acting. There was some snappy lines. So I'm going to give it four failed assassinations out of ten. Well, that gives us an average of um, basically just over four for this episode. Four point, we'll call it 4.1 with rounding, which doesn't quite make it the worst of the season on our averages. That, that honor still goes to Galaxy 4, but this is not done well. And we are definitely very much in a different opinion to the majority of fandom. I will say that one of the chaps at the Flight Through Entirety podcast feels exactly the same, and I think he would actually go as far as to say that this is the worst story of the 60s, if I remember correctly. So um... I think I enjoyed Galaxy 4 much more than this. It was, oh, it was yes. kind of dumb, but it was, it was fun in places. This, I struggled. If, if, if I told you you actually scored this higher than Galaxy 4, do you want to revise your score? Remember when the scoring didn't actually matter? <laughs> yeah. Okay, we'll keep it at that. Uh, yeah, so this was definitely a struggle. Quick question before we wrap up. If a magical genie appeared before you and said, you have your choice of missing story that you can return of the ones we've done so far. And I mean, completely missing. So that would be Gallic, uh, would be Marco Polo mission to the unknown, uh, the myth makers and the mascot. So no existing episodes, which one would you pick to be returned? Myth makers. Marco. Polo. Oh, okay. Either myth makers or Marco Polo. I'm with myth makers. So, not the massacre. No. No. Point proven. No. <laughs> I just want to see the the costuming and that sandstorm for Marco Polo. God, that feels like so long ago. Because it was. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion on the massacre. We'll be back next time covering an exciting story about Dodo catching a cold. In the meantime, <laughs> all of our previous episodes are available on your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watches4D. And as a reminder, you can email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. But for now, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watches in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak, and myself, Anthony Williams. 
This episode, I'm not a proctologist, but was recorded on Thursday the 5th of December 2019. We're so depressed at the end of this story. There's nothing witty to be said. Go on, go home, nothing to see.